I'm joined now by Dr. Ida Milne, social historian of disease and medicine and lecturer at Carlo College, who's researched and written extensively on the influenza pandemic in Ireland in 1918 and 1919. Ida, you're very welcome back to The History Show. Thank you for having me on. Now, you joined us about 13 months ago, around the time of the first confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Ireland. I think it was actually one of the last uh, in-studio live interviews that we did, if not the last. Uh, And you joined us then to talk about the many echoes and the lessons from a century ago that can inform the present situation. And obviously a lot has happened in the interim. Today, the fear of a fourth wave of the virus is one of the things influencing the government's decision-making. Within Ireland, there were three waves of the so-called and erroneously named Spanish flu. In your research, did you find that there was fear of a fourth wave? Oh, absolutely. Um, And and the way that fear was sometimes expressed by not talking about it rather than talking about it. I interviewed a man called Tommy Christian, who was five years old when he caught it here right beside me in our clock in in, uh, North Kildare. And when I asked him why it hadn't been talked about afterwards, he said, look, it kept coming back and then it had come back and then it came back again. And he said, we were just afraid if we spoke about it, that that it would come again. But when you look through the newspapers uh, for years afterwards, there is a kind of non-naming naming of it, if you like, that they'll talk. There was a severe outbreak of flu in 1925 and they began disinfecting the buses. But they just say, you know, uh, because of past events, they don't say because of the 1918 flu. So that there is always this tension that's hanging in the newspapers, but even though it doesn't exactly express what, what it's talking about. And the same thing is evident in other archival material, too, like in hospitals and things, when they say we don't want a repeat of the past, but they don't actually say what they're referring to. So definitely they didn't know when the third wave ended in, in the Irish context in April 1919 that that was going to be it. They suspected that it might come back again. So the great Irish tradition of whatever you say, say nothing. Now, the government's policies and the measures implemented to manage the public health crisis are constantly debated on TV and radio today. Did the administration in 1918 and 1919 face criticism for their response to the pandemic back then? Oh, for sure. It was it was a big debate. And uh, the media in particular, the, the, the print news, as it was at the time, were constantly asking questions, particularly of the local government board for Ireland. They'd say, what are the people in the custom house doing about at this? And that was true even in papers like the Kildare Observer, which is effectively a castle paper, you know, a paper of the establishment. And um, they say that as well as the nationalist papers. So really, there was no grand central plan from the local government board. You know, I kind of wonder, had they mentally already backed out of governing Ireland at that stage? But the same thing was true for the local government board for England and Wales and for Scotland as well. There was no grand central plan from them either. So in the absence of that and because of the way the various regulations were set up, it was a a lot of local authority people who took over and in particular in Ireland, I suppose the leading medical figure of authority was Sir Charles Cameron, who was the Dublin Medical Officer of Health and 88 years of old at the time of the flu and very trusted by uh, just about every layer in society, uh, something that he actually talked about himself, you know, that uh, that he knew that he was trusted. And he really uh, stepped in and was sought out by journalists quite a lot. 
and would say things, very simple messaging. He understood that, whereas the local government board's messaging was quite complex. But even he got hit by the media and he says, you know, I'm either I'm told I haven't gone far enough or I'm told I've gone too far. People criticise me. Charles Cameron of Dublin Corporation's Public Health Department. Was he a bit like the, the, the Tony Holohan of his of his time, albeit probably about twice Dr. Holohan's age? Absolutely. He was, uh, as you say, you know, it's something that you see with Dr. Holland, if, if, if forgive me for saying that he's, you know, become more and more trusted, I think, by society as this period has gone on. And Cameron was really, he'd been diligently improving the health of Dubliners for 50 years. And the rate of death from infectious disease had gone down from nine per thousand in 1879 to just over one per thousand living in 1917. So the city, for all we hear criticism of the health of Dublin at the time of the revolutionary period, it had improved enormously. And that was in many ways thanks to the actions of Cameron. You mentioned Cameron was a great believer in communication and the importance of communication and the importance of the simplicity or keeping communication as simple as possible, wasn't he? He was. He he was an absolutely brilliant and very clear communicator. And he understood, it's quite clear from his letters to the press, that he put nothing in it that would confound the message that he wanted to get across. So he says things like, you know, the important thing is when you get it to go to bed, stay there until you're well better, because many people get sick or die from another infection after recovering from the flu. And he said then, you know, that it's really important that you have good nursing and that that will save many people. And the other big message that he put across was isolating as far as possible and just sticking away from crowds. But Dublin Corporation issued a really clear poster listing about six or seven points. And there were, you know, I'm pretty sure it was written by Cameron because they were very clear and easy to understand. And again, underlining the messages that he put in his letters, whereas the local government board for Ireland issued a really convoluted pamphlet of, of advice that was only carried in the Irish Times. I haven't seen it in any other newspaper. And when you are in a crisis, something I've often been reflecting on at the moment, you're looking to the authorities for really easy to understand messages, you know, because you haven't got the capacity to understand complex messages in the normal way when, when you're in a panic about something. So I think he understood that really well. He didn't outlive the pandemic very long himself, though, did he? No, he died 100 years ago last month. Hotel quarantines have obviously been one of the big talking points of the last few months internationally, was there any country that imposed a a rigorous quarantine? Um, Well, I suppose in terms of boundaries, the most rigorously imposed one was in Australia, where um, ships coming in would be, you know, people that were suspected of, of being infected would have to stay on them before they disembarked. Otherwise, you don't see that much mention of quarantine. Uh, which is quite surprising, given that the concept of quarantine is really well known. I suspect that in the Irish case, the reason, you know, you would have imagined that it would have been easy enough to quarantine us as an island. But that the reason that quarantine wasn't suggested here was because America had just come into the war picture and they were using us as a base to operate the convoy system to protect shipping against the U-boat attacks. But I haven't found any hard evidence of that. But it seems, you know, that might be a factor. 
Now, the medical community then did, of course, understand bacteria, and they also understood the importance of hygiene. In fact, as you've pointed out before, if it wasn't for this new strain of influenza, flu deaths might have been the lowest on record in 1918. Now, I know that's a very big what if, but is that the case? It's not just flu deaths, but actually all deaths would have been the lowest ever in, in 1918. There was something happening then called the, the epidemiological transition. And they thought, um, you know, deaths from particularly from infectious disease were dropping quite rapidly in the Ireland of the 1910s. And they thought this was because they were applying bacteriological methods. And then along came this virus, which confounded everything. They thought at the time the flu was a bacteria, probably Pfeiffer's bacillus, which we now know as HIV, but they weren't sure. And this was something that confounded a very confident contemporary medicine. So it really forced them to look harder for answers, much in the same way as this is happening today. You know, that medicine was working out of its skin back then, just like it is now to come up with new solutions to this really perplexing disease. Yeah, on that particular issue in November 1918, I think there was there was an emergency meeting of the Royal Academy of Medicine in Ireland where doctors pooled their suggestions on how to respond to the influenza uh, pandemic. What was their view of vaccines back in 1918? A fascinating question. Some people were very keen on vaccines. Um, Dr. Lynn, Kathleen Lynn, the Sinn Féin doctor, was really, really keen on them. And she was using a preparation made by UCD, a laboratory in UCD at the time, and vaccinated several thousand people in Dublin with it. But her vaccine was made from a mixture of different types of bacteria. And we don't know quite how efficacious they would have been against the flu. But it's possible some of my scientist friends like Dr. Anne Moore in UCC, who's an immunologist, have suggested that it might have prevented a secondary bacterial infection. But at that particular meeting, many of the leading doctors of the city spoke about their use of vaccines and their judgment said overall that the jury was still out really on how effective they were. Some people like William Boxwell were really against them. He had vaccinated a couple of people people who were already suffering from it and their health had gone down downhill very quickly and they died in a couple of days. So he actually thought it was quite dangerous. Others thought that they were more effective and at least worth trying. So, you know, it, it was really hotly debated. Uh, vaccines were made in many different Irish laboratories, as well as the UCD one. There was one made by uh, Professor Culverwell in Trinity and in other what they called bacteriological laboratories around the country. When it came to the issue of uh, vaccines, obviously one of the things that we're experiencing at the moment is rampant misinformation. Was there misinformation at the time, back in in 1918, 1919? Yeah, not so much in in an Irish context, but in an international context, there was quite a lot of debate in in, in parts of America and even in anti-vaccine league. The American army were being vaccinated against typhus for entering the war. So a rumour went round that, that that was actually what had caused the flu, that it wasn't an influenza at all, but a reaction to the typhus vaccine. Now, we know now that large public gatherings are one of the ways that this disease or any of these diseases spread, that the uh, pandemic, the Spanish flu pandemic spread as well. Did large gatherings at funerals, for example, contribute to the spread of influenza at the time or uh, was that recognised? 
I think it's quite clear that the uh, kind of traditional Irish funeral, yes, certainly did. And that wakes, wakes were definitely seen as being a problem and may have been a major factor in the fact that Donegal had such a high experience of death from influenza across all three waves in the Irish context, because wakes are a very strong part of Donegal's uh, tradition. But there were also a lot of questions and suggestions about the holding of funerals. Uh, For example, the Archbishop of the Catholic Archbishop of uh, Dublin, uh, William Walsh, who was in very close touch with Cameron. Uh, There's a lot of correspondence between them over the years. He suggested that for the 1st of November, that people shouldn't observe abstinence or fast in case they they weaken themselves during the pandemic. And the other thing he suggested was that um, where somebody had died from the flu, uh, that perhaps it was wiser not to bring their corpse into the church, but the people themselves attending the funeral could go in all right. Another uh, phenomenon at the time was, uh, you know, when somebody who was maybe a member of Sinn Féin or otherwise a prominent person died from flu, there was often uh, a very big funeral. And one of those, which has interesting echoes now, too, was a guy called James Toll, a Sinn Féin member from Dundalk, who had 6,000 at his funeral. Um, the Bobby story of his day. Yeah, absolutely. And sometime I must trace and see what happened about a fortnight later to see if there is a spike in deaths in the Dundalk region after that. Now, one of the, the cliches, I suppose, of the current pandemic is we're all in this together, which is treated with considerable and deserve, much deserved scepticism, I think. But another interesting aspect of the influenza pandemic is how people were hit across class lines. Yeah, um, I have really quite strong data from Dublin for that, using the four socioeconomic classes recognised or used by the Registrar General to um, classify death. And the data from that shows that each class was affected, regardless whether it was the first class, you know, the landlords, the senior bankers, uh, whatever, right down to the fourth class. They were all they all suffered in each wave. But it's also quite clear. And um, my colleague Frank Ludlow in Trinity pointed this to me when we were doing an exhibition for Glasnevin Cemetery on the flu, that the upper class seemed to be taking some precautions during the really peak weeks of the second and the third wave because there was an inversion in the data. They would start to go up and then at right at the very peak week, they would go down and drop. So he said those people have, have realised that something is happening and they're staying at home. And one newspaper account for, in the Irish Times talks about um, an elite, elite grocer in Westmoreland Street who said um, that the better class of people are sending out for their messages just now. But it doesn't say anything about what happened to the poor devil who was sent out for the messages. Now, historians are often viewed as uh, nerdy individuals who like to populate archives and do stuff that's of very little relevance to what's going on today. Um, I suspect that your work in particular would give the lie to that, that this is really an example of why history and why the study of history is important. I mean, we're looking here at a a classic example, are we not, of applied history? Absolutely. And something I feel very strongly about in all my work, like my my other work as well. I've been in in something of an unusual position this year. I think I've written in excess of 50,000 words directly myself in the press or on on blogs and uh, contributed to podcasts and TV and 
in Britain and Ireland and North America. And it's been really, I think, I suppose, helpful for me to think that my work can be used in these ways by different branches of medicine, by, you know, the Irish army as well was interested in my work. And I feel that a lot of the times as as academics were measured by the publications that we do uh, rather than our public history outputs. And, you know, you could do a lot of really good work, put it into an academic journal that might only be seen by 15 or 20 people. The type of work I do looking at public health and looking at how infectious disease was managed in the past and looking at the implications that diseases like COVID or like the 1918 flu, how they impact directly on families. And and of course, I've interviewed a lot of people uh, who talk about the impact of diseases like this over the course of their lives, not just during the immediate crisis. But I think like work like this can be really useful to help inform things like uh, medicine, politicians, public health in general. And I think that as academics, a lot of the time we're measured on you know, the gold standard for an academic is a good academic journal. Whereas perhaps we might have a rethink and think is something like this history applied an appropriate way to measure our value to society as well. And in a way, maybe that uh, society itself can see more clearly and understand better at a time when we see uh, not so much in Ireland, but in other countries like the UK, for example, that the humanities are seeing in some universities huge reductions in certain departments like English or history or sociology or whatever. My guest is Dr. Ida Mill, lecturer at Carlow College. And by the way, Ida's book on the subject called Stacking the Coffins, Influenza, War and Revolution in Ireland, 1918 to 1919, is available in all good bookshops. Ida, many thanks for joining us once again on The History Show this evening. 